Christchurch, New Malden, 19th of January 2020, 11 o'clock service. Stephen Kurt speaking in the series, Romans and the Covenant, The Mystery of the Covenant, Part 3. Well, uh, hindsight, it is often said, is a wonderful thing, isn't it? When we're caught in the middle of something and we're unsure about how that situation will work out, it's very often immensely confusing and perplexing and very difficult to see how God is in control. But at the end of a set of events, when they've played out their course, it's often a very different matter, isn't it? Particularly when we're looking back on a situation through the lens of our Christian faith. When we're looking back, we can often see with a lot more clarity how events that were troubling and difficult at the time we're actually working to advance God's purpose. But that's a lot more difficult to believe and to see when we're right in the middle of events, isn't it? It's then that we need a great deal more faith. And much of Romans chapters 9 to 11, this uh, section of Paul's famous letter that we've been looking at over the last three weeks, much of chapters 9 to 11 is Paul seeking to speak into the middle of God's covenant project to address the big issue, both for himself and at least quite a few of his readers, namely the issue of why Israel, the covenant people of God, had by and large failed to respond to the good news that in his son Jesus Christ, God had brought the fulfilment of his covenant promises. And as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, if you've been here, Paul has sought to explain that it's all part of the mystery of God's fulfilment of the covenant. God, according to Paul, had allowed his very people Israel to become hardened precisely in order that the Gentiles might then be welcomed into his people. Israel being cut off was somehow a necessary part of the process. Now, perhaps, uh, I've suggested, because of its role in the atonement process, with Israel being kept in a state of sin and used as a vessel of wrath, precisely so that that sin and wrath that Israel carried could then be passed on and carried in turn by her Messiah, Jesus, and dealt with when he died. Now, that's just a suggestion and it's based on trying to fit together various different bits of Romans and make sense of them, and particularly the stuff that Paul says earlier in chapters 5 and 7 about the mysterious role that the law had in increasing Israel's sin. So that's just a suggestion, my particular understanding of how that might all fit together in working towards the death of Jesus. But what is certain is Paul's appeal to the Roman Christians in the middle of all of this, to have faith in God. To have faith in God that however things might look, God was actually working to a purpose in hardening his covenant people Israel. And what we get in chapter 11, the chapter that we're looking at this morning, is a further insight into the end of the story. As I've said uh, quite a few times over the last couple of weeks, we mustn't assume that the middle of the story of God's covenant is identical with the end 
of that story. And what Paul reveals in Romans chapter 11 is that Israel's hardening wasn't something that was going to be permanent. God both could, and in many cases would, bring about a very different ending to the story of Israel. So perhaps you might want to turn to uh, Romans 11. This was a passage that Chris uh, read to us a few moments ago. I'm going to refer to the passages that Elizabeth uh, read as well, but we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 11, page 1137. And this chapter starts pretty bluntly. In the light of everything that Paul's already said, the question is bluntly put whether God had therefore rejected his people Israel. Has he therefore, in the light of everything that Paul said, has God permanently abandoned his people Israel? And to that question, Paul gives an emphatic no. And the very first bit of evidence that he gives is Paul himself. Paul was thoroughly Jewish, wasn't he? He was a descendant of Abraham, as all the Jews were, and he, in particular, came from the tribe of Benjamin. And to explain the point that he's trying to make, Paul goes back to that story of Elijah in the Old Testament, that reading from 1 Kings 19 that Elizabeth brought to us earlier, and that story where Elijah was thoroughly depressed. Why was Elijah depressed? He was depressed about how faithless Israel had become. Back in Elijah's day, 840 or so years um, before uh, the coming of Jesus, uh, basically there was a lot of Baal worship going on, a lot of idolatry, and most of Israel had sold out to it. And Elijah was thoroughly depressed about it. But in response to Elijah, God promised that he was preserving a faithful remnant of his people. He had reserved 7,000. It wasn't just Elijah, however, it felt like that. He had reserved 7,000 who had not bowed down to Baal. And preserving this faithful remnant was a sign in Elijah's day that God was still committed to his covenant people Israel. Now fast forward 800 years and we see Paul presenting himself and other Jewish Christians like him as a similar sign of God's faithfulness. They were chosen, he emphasised, because of God's grace rather than because of their Jewish works, but their identity as Jews is nonetheless a sign of God's continuing commitment to Israel. And that was needed because according to Paul, and he's very frank about this, Israel as a whole had become so hardened by God. This is in verses 7 uh, to 10. Paul again, as he does a lot in these chapters, quotes the Old Testament. This time he quotes Deuteronomy, Isaiah and Psalm 69. And he speaks of how God had actually given his people Israel a spirit of stupor so that they couldn't see or hear his message. And he'd actually darkened their eyes from it. And all of this tallies with that other passage, that very brief one, that I also asked that Elizabeth read this morning. That passage in the Gospels, we read the version from Mark, but it occurs in Matthew and Luke as well, where Jesus talks about why he spoke in parables. And Jesus gives a very disturbing explanation for why he did that. And it's one that virtually all biblical commentaries, I've said this before, try to evade. 
they usually try and sort of wriggle out of what the words are actually saying. Because what Jesus says is that he taught in parables so that his listeners, the people of Israel, wouldn't be able to understand his message. It's very odd, isn't it? Very odd. Until we read it in the light of what Paul says here. And that the hardening of God's covenant people Israel was actually all part of the mysterious plan, the mysterious master plan that God was working to. People today are very suspicious of master plans, aren't they? Politicians can be pretty unpopular, but their advisers, people like Alastair Campbell and Dominic Cummins, well, they're regarded as just about the worst, aren't they, often by people in terms of distrust. In fact, people still use that expression Machiavellian after the 16th century Italian diplomat Machiavelli to describe politicians who have devious master plans. And perhaps when we hear about God having a mysterious master plan, we can start to think, well, what is he? Is he some sort of Machiavelli? God's not like that at all. We want an image for God. It's more like an incredibly committed and loving parent. But a parent who sometimes takes decisions that remain a complete mystery to the child that they're trying to protect. A really committed and loving parent, and quite a number of you will have been in this situation, will sometimes have to take decisions that seem completely nonsensical and indeed cruel to their children. They may seem that way, but they're not. Because actually those parents, with their greater wisdom, are working, if that child could but know it, to the best possible outcome for both them and for others. That's more the way that we need to see God. As someone who is infinitely wiser than us and is therefore doing things that we will not always understand and not always make sense of and sometimes from our perspective, as if we're like little children, we can see as rather cruel and get frustrated about it. But God has got so much greater wisdom. And Paul does see God's purpose in terms of a family situation here. Because a big part, according to Paul, of the outcome of this mysterious way that God is acting is the extension of his family. Israel's transgression, Israel's sin, ironically, is the very means by which the Gentiles could enter God's family. This, jumping ahead to verse 25, you might want to look at that verse is the mystery of the covenant according to Paul that Israel in part it's actually quite a large part had experienced a hardening until the full number of the Gentiles had come in but Paul says the fact that at this time most of Israel were enemies of the gospel didn't mean that God had permanently abandoned them he hadn't and Paul's message to the mainly Gentile Christian readers of this letter, most of the uh, church in Rome was Gentile by this stage, is that just as God at one time had turned them as Gentiles from disobedience to receiving his mercy, so precisely the same could and in many cases would happen with Israel. 
Israel's rejection of Jesus had played a key role in the reconciliation of the world through bringing about Jesus' death. But Israel's eventual acceptance of Jesus, Paul says, would form part of his resurrection from that death. So if the Jewish rejection of Jesus played a crucial role in bringing about the death of Jesus, which of course brought forgiveness and brought the incorporation of the Gentiles, Paul is saying, how much more is Israel's acceptance and incorporation going to reflect that resurrection from the dead that followed the death of Jesus? And the illustration that Paul uses in these chapters to make his point and unpack what he means is that of an olive tree. The people that Paul was talking to were used to the idea of gardeners looking after olive trees. And they were used to seeing a couple of things, one of which we'll sort of be a bit more familiar with, and the other might strike us as a little bit odd, unless you're really sophisticated gardeners, which a number of you are, because uh, those roses out the front at church have been so looked after for so many years. So some of you will be able to relate to all this stuff much better than me. But basically, people at the time of Paul were used to those who looked after olive trees doing a couple of things that were really very important. One was pruning those olive trees, taking off the branches of olive trees and sort of making space for, uh, for growth. We know about pruning from what happens with rose bushes. But there was another thing as well. What they were used to seeing was people taking the branches of olive trees that had been cultivated and grafting those branches into wild olive trees so that those cultivated olive branches, the ones that tended to be more fruitful, could then share in the powerful nourishment generated by the wild olive. And what Paul says is that the incorporation of the Gentiles into God's covenant family was a bit like this. But it was like this in reverse. The Gentiles, he says, were like the branches of a wild olive tree being grafted into a cultivated tree. And many of the original branches on that cultivated tree had had to be pruned or broken off in order to make way for them. Now, the fact that with real olive trees, it doesn't happen that way around. It's the branches of the cultivated olive tree that are grafted into the wild one rather than the other way around. That is just the point, really, that Paul is making here. He's making a point about this being a miracle of grace. God had brought the Gentiles into his family as the most stupendous miracle of grace. And that's what Paul emphasizes here. And that's because the major point that Paul wants to make to his Gentile readers is that if God could graft in wild branches like them, he could certainly graft back in those cultivated branches. In other words, the people of Israel. You see, Paul's aim, and we did start this series several weeks ago now emphasising this, Paul's central aim throughout this whole letter to the Romans is to encourage a deeper love between Gentile Christians and their Jewish brothers and sisters. What Paul wants to encourage amongst the Gentile Christians at Rome is an enormous love, both for those Jews who were Christians already, he wants the Gentile Christians to really love them, 
He also wants the Gentile Christians in Rome to really love those Jews who weren't yet Christians as well. Rather than despising Israel for its rejection of Jesus, what Paul wants the Gentiles to do is to recognise God's mysterious hand at work in the Jews' rejection of their Messiah that God had promised them. Gentile Christians, Paul says, needed to avoid arrogance and recognise that if God didn't spare the natural branches of the olive tree, the Jews, then he certainly wouldn't spare the wild branches if they were disobedient to him as well. In other words, Paul says there's no complacency or no room for complacency on your part. But more than that, he also wanted them to recognise that God's plans for Israel were not done. Envy, as they saw those Gentiles receiving the very blessings that God had promised to Israel, that will be a factor, Paul says, in saving some of them. And Paul makes it clear in verse 23 that if Israel didn't continue in unbelief, then many from Israel would be grafted back in. And the result of this, well, the result of this, Paul says, is that all Israel would be saved. All Israel at this point refers to those Gentiles belonging to God. They become part of the Israel of God as well. But it also refers to all those Jews who would at last respond to and accept Jesus as their Messiah. And that's going to happen, Paul says, in the future. Jews that have seemed hardened against God and have been hardened, and for a purpose, being drawn back in, grafted back in to God's family through their acceptance of Jesus as their Messiah. Now, a lot of this can seem rather obscure, interesting maybe, but rather obscure. This is all stuff to do with 2,000 years ago. What is its application to us today? Well, much, as I say, of the content of these chapters is very specific to a first century context. And that's perhaps another reason why these chapters of Romans, chapters 9 to 11, have been relatively neglected in comparison to the rest of the letter. They don't tend to be explored nearly so much as Romans 1 to 8. But there are a couple of very obvious and I think important applications that we should think through. One of them is more specific and the other is more general. And I want to uh, think about the specific one for a few moments first. And it's the mandate to all Christians, without exception, to show respect and love for the Jews. I touched on anti-Semitism a couple of weeks ago. And the terrible fact that this form of racism, once again, appears to be on the increase it's rather like some sort of terrible infection that seems to be got under control, only to flare up again. And this so often has happened throughout the history of Europe. And the reason is, at least in part, because Christian countries have very often struggled to know what to do in response to the Jews. Particularly when so-called Christendom existed, being a Christian kingdom... The only exception to that really were the Jews. Obviously there were plenty of people who wouldn't be living out or actively uh, demonstrating their Christian faith, but officially they all were. 
So the only exception to this for many hundreds of years was the Jews. And within so-called Christian countries, very often there was a great deal of perplexity about what to do in response to the Jews, how to live uh, alongside them. In England, during the reign of Edward I in the 13th century, the Jews were expelled in their entirety. They were readmitted during the 17th century, during the time of Oliver Cromwell, but even after that, people in Britain very much struggled to relate to the Jews that lived amongst them. Jews very often were treated with suspicion and distrust by the majority of British people. A lot of you here will probably have seen the film Chariots of Fire, and it's most famous, certainly for Christians, through its portrayal of the devout Christian athlete Eric Liddell. But if you're familiar with that film Chariots of Fire, it was made in 1981, quite a long time ago now, you'll know that the other key character in the film is Harold Abrahams. He's the other key athlete. They uh, compete uh, against each other and their rivals to a great extent. And a key theme of Chariots of Fire, as well as dwelling on this devout Christian, Eric Liddell, who wouldn't run on a Sunday and uh, what happened uh, in relation to him, another key theme of that film is the battle that Harold Abrahams had as a British Jew in overcoming prejudice and discrimination. This is in the 1920s in Britain, only a hundred years ago. When it comes to historic anti-Semitism, what the Nazis did in Germany and all the horrors of the Holocaust, that gets most of the attention, doesn't it? But if truth be told, that anti-Semitism that was demonstrated so appallingly and horribly during that period of the Second World War it had its deep roots in the culture that actually we have inherited. In fact, it took the Holocaust and its impact to make biblical scholars wake up to the extent to which anti-Semitism had influenced a great deal of how the Bible, and especially Paul, had been read and interpreted. And we've simply got to be a million miles away from all of that. Romans 9 to 11 aren't a few verses tucked away in the corner of the Bible that we could be forgiven for not noticing. They're a mandate to Christians to love, respect, and be utterly grateful to our Jewish brothers and sisters for their crucial role, their indispensable role, according to Paul, in God's covenant plan. Not least, I believe, the mysterious way in which their rejection of Jesus was mysteriously all part of the way in which his death then enabled us to be brought into his covenant people. There are other ways that we can be grateful to our Jewish brothers and sisters as well. A number of years ago, about 10, I think, we had a Jewish rabbi and a Muslim imam come to Christchurch. Sounds like the start of a joke, but it's not. It was out in the lounge, and I can't remember why it was arranged um, or... um, what had brought it about. Uh, My memory of it is quite hazy, uh, apart from certain parts of it. Because basically the rabbi and the imam uh, had to speak first uh, about their faith, and then I had to make a response. It was very early on in the time that I was vicar here. And in response to the rabbi, and uh, as the sort of positive uh, response that I made, because I wanted my response to be both positive and critical, In my positive response to the rabbi, 
I talked about my admiration fairly briefly. It wasn't a great big long talk. My admiration for the holistic nature of Judaism. The fact that Judaism doesn't divide things into sacred and secular categories, as Christians very often do. The way that Judaism seeks to apply God and seek God in every single part of life. On Monday night, I think this was mentioned earlier, we're starting a new course, Making Sense of Christianity, here at Christchurch. Any of you that want to come are warmly invited. And one of the emphases of that course is trying to help us to sort of get back to that holistic vision of seeing God in everything and away from this dualism that Christianity has very often slipped into in this regard, putting things in sacred categories and secular categories rather than seeking to see God in everything. Now, the critical bit in this uh, little response I gave 10 years ago was uh, where I talked about the rather insular and non-missionary nature of Judaism. But part of loving and respecting the Jews and indeed interpreting Christianity correctly is acknowledging this integrated holistic vision of life that the Hebrew scriptures hold out to us. And this isn't abolished by the time we get to the New Testament. It isn't sort of phased out in favour of a more spiritual and less physical form of faith. Everything that the Old Testament stands for, including its holistic vision for living, represented in the Old Testament law, that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And perhaps our Jewish brothers and sisters will be more inclined to engage with Jesus as their Messiah, as well as ours, if we demonstrate this more obviously, both in the way that we live our lives and in our gratitude towards them. So that is one very specific application, I believe, of these chapters. But there's a broader one as well. And this is the call to respect and love the wisdom and the sovereignty of God. All of us here who are Christians, I've said this a lot in this uh, series, can, if we're honest, sometimes find ourselves asking what God's up to. When we look at the world and the disasters that occur, when we look at the state of politics in our country, perhaps most painfully when things go wrong in our personal lives, we're all tempted to think that God is, either isn't in control or that he is rather cruel and heartless. And perhaps the thing that can most upset committed Christians, and I know that this is true for a number of you here, is when we have close members of our family. It might be spouses, it might be siblings, it might be children or grandchildren who appear to be completely hardened against God. That can be very, very painful. Now, I'm nervous about drawing too precise a parallel to what Paul says here about the people of Israel because, as I say, there is a certain uniqueness about Israel's role in the covenant purposes of God. But its emphasis on the mystery involved in the working out of God's purpose does nonetheless provide us with a certain encouragement, doesn't it? And it's very instructive that Romans 9 to 11 end with a doxology. If you look on page 1139, verses 33 
to 36, you'll see that this section of Romans, chapters 9 to 11, ends by Paul emphasising the wisdom of God by quoting from Isaiah and Job. And this is what he says. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Romans 9 to 11 quote as much from the Old Testament really as any other section of the New Testament. Not in order to cherry pick random passages that point to Jesus, but in order to give an interpretation of where the whole long winding narrative that the Old Testament contains was always headed. And the deep level of mystery involved in the unfolding story is at the heart of what it reveals. And in particular, the role that things that appeared disastrous, upsetting and perplexing actually had in the unfolding amazing wisdom of God in the fulfilment of that plan. What these passages can therefore teach us in the year 2020 is the need to trust God when things look at their most disastrous. To trust that God is in control and that whatever things might look like and however many things seem to be going wrong, God is working his purpose out. God is working his purpose out through, yes, the good things that happen, perhaps sometimes even more through the disasters that occur. Because he is a God of redemption. And he's a God of mystery. And he's a God who, when things happen that look the very opposite of what we assume God would want, very often God is working to that purpose of bringing his great covenant plan of rescue for the world further towards its glorious fulfilment. Let's have faith in that God, particularly when we're at those points where we think, what on earth is going on? Let's pray. Father God, we bring before you two things this morning. Our relationship to our Jewish brothers and sisters, particularly those uh, who don't accept your Son, Jesus Christ, as their Messiah. Lord, help us to demonstrate love and gratitude. The qualities that Paul exhorts the Gentile Christians in this passage towards and Lord God use our love and our gratitude but also our reception of those blessings that you promised to Israel use all of that Lord God to bring more and more people of Israel back to you but we also pray that you would help us to have such a faith in the mystery of the way that your covenant plan works out, that we will be able to trust you, particularly when things are dispiriting or upsetting or downright disastrous. And we particularly pray for those members of our families that seem hardened against you. Lord God, we trust that you're working to a purpose. 
Some of us would have prayed for years for those who appear thoroughly hardened. But Lord God, in the same way that you worked through the hardening of Israel, within your sovereign purposes, we pray, Lord God, that you would reveal your mysterious uh, plan with a positive outcome. And we pray that when all Israel is saved, it would include those people who you've placed in our hearts and we love so much, and that they would come through the hardening process and somehow be readmitted into being your precious sons and daughters. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.